0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple Podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple. And today we're back in the podcast studio and I've got a special guest with us today, Cynthia Hayes. Cynthia is a former journalist, hospital executive, and cancer survivor who currently advocates for and mentors cancer patients. She has been preparing her whole life to write... The big ordeal, which she wrote, so she's an author. Thank you for joining us today on the Project Purple podcast, Cynthia.
1: Well, thank you, Dino. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, and um, any chance to talk about cancer and how much of an ordeal it is um, for the patients who go through it is uh, is a real pleasure.
0: Well, I, I, full disclosure: your uh, your publicist or your marketing team reached out to us about having you on the podcast. And when I when I got the request, I was like, oh, this is really kind of cool because, you know, we love sharing stories of inspiration. Naturally, if they come from the pancreatic cancer space, that's great. But if they don't, that's fine as well. We've had plenty of guests on the Project Purple podcast that are not directly related to pancreatic cancer. Um, So we love to share stories of inspiration. And as I was doing my research, you've got a great story. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share your journey, share your story today with our audience. So really appreciate you reaching out. I don't know if you ask someone to do that or if your team does it, kudos to them. (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, you know, um, I love uh, being able to, uh, to share uh, and um, help people understand uh, why cancer is such a big ordeal. And so uh, looking for all sorts of opportunities to, uh, to tell not just my story, but other people's stories and what I've learned from listening to all of those stories um, in, order to, uh, in order to spread the word.
0: I love it. I love it. So as we do on all of our podcasts, this first segment is really our guest opportunity to share their background. And some of our listeners may know you, you've got a book out, um, but for those that maybe don't, here's your opportunity to share your background. And as I always say, you can go as far back, you can stay as high level as you want, and then we'll go from there. So with that, the mic is yours.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Dino. So, um, I was, uh, boy, diagnosed with cancer a little over five years ago, and uh, my cancer diagnosis, like many people's, came totally out of the blue. I had um, uh, been following the government advice that says, oh, you only need your gynecologic screenings and your breast cancer screenings every couple of years, every two to three years in my age group. And... Um, and so I took them seriously and my gynecologist, um, said, no, 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 not so fast. You need to get in here and you know, it's been over a year, get yourself in here um, now. And so I went to see the gynecologist with absolutely no complaints and and no, uh, no concerns at all. And, um, when my phone rang a week later, uh, and I saw my gynecologist's name pop up on the screen, I assumed it was a, a billing issue. Um, hmm. But, uh, you know, even though I was walking down the street and sort of answered the, the uh, phone casually while I continued walking, I stopped short when she said, you've got some blubbity-blah blah, blah cells in your pap smear and I don't like it and you need to come back in for more testing. And I sort of gave that a, you know, a moment's thought and then said, um, okay, I'll call the office. She was, the gynecologist was in the hospital delivering the baby. And so she signed off quickly. And my daughter and I were on our way to get manicures and uh, we had a deadline. So I just continued on my way and said, okay, I'll give them a call. Still not at all worried. When we got to the manicurist, I had about um, a minute and a half to... Uh, you know, Google the blah, 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 cells that she, uh, she mentioned and, um, uh, you know, before succumbing to the manicurist. And, um, I wish my fingers were not quite so, uh, <laughs> so good at searching because hmm. the cells that she mentioned, um, were the early warning signs of a very aggressive type of endometrial cancer. Um, so again, I had no complaints. I had no health concerns at all. But I had flunked my pap smear, and now it looked like I was facing um, a death sentence of a cancer. So obviously, I was instantly in a panic. And yes, I had my nails painted, and yes, I went out um, for the evening we had planned. Uh, but I was in um, in fear of my life from that from that moment on. And then, as uh, with most cancers, you don't really know anything for a while still. So I did go back to the, the office and had a. Um, a biopsy, which was a grueling experience. Um, and then that confirmed that, yes, uh, there was cancer, but we still didn't know anything about the size and shape and, and whatnot. So then I was scheduled for uh, a PET scan and it was, you know, more waiting and, oh, by the way, you need a surgeon. Um, so, you know, start interviewing for, uh, for surgeons. And who knows still what the prognosis is going to be because we don't know um you know again how big how extensive um or even exactly what type of cancer it is and we won't know that until after surgery so lots of anxiety lots of uncertainty um and uh you know a few weeks later i did have the surgery and they cleaned me out it was a radical hysterectomy which means um they took my ovaries and fallopian tubes and uterus and cervix and lymph nodes and extra tissue here and there, and they um, sent everything off to the lab to figure out what was going on. And uh, you know, another ten days after that, I was finally given a uh, a clear diagnosis and prognosis, which was that I had an aggressive type of uh, uterine cancer called. Um, Serous carcinoma, um, high grade, um, and but it was caught stage one. So that cap mm. smear that I didn't think that I needed actually saved my life. Um, but, you know, just because we've caught it in stage one uh, doesn't mean you're going to get off easy, Cynthia, because it is so aggressive. So six rounds of chemo for you. And um, six rounds of carboplatin and taxol, two, um nasty uh, chemos. Um, That, of course, meant that I lost my hair, um, lost my sense of self, lost control over my life, um, and uh, lost my identity as I no longer looked or felt or thought like the person I was before my diagnosis. And it was in the process of struggling through, um, you know, round four, five, and six of uh, chemo treatments. I was at the gym trying to... um, regain just a little modicum of energy sitting on the bike bald as can be feeling you know absurd that I looked the way I did and hanging out at the gym with you know obviously you can't wear a wig at the gym it's just too hot um and some guy comes and sits on the bike next to me and I'd seen him at the gym before but you know never knew him or had a conversation with him and he sits down he starts telling me his cancer story and I realized how um, how many similarities there were between his story and my story? I mean, he talked about the incredible sense of isolation that he felt. And it's like, oh, yeah, Jack got that. He talked about the difficulty of, of communicating with anybody about what he really felt like he was going through. It's like, yep, Jack got that. He talked about the increasing depression as his treatment went on. It's like, yep, Jack got that. I was like, well, so if we feel this way, if we have this common experience, why is it that nobody is talking about it? And that's what got me thinking, well, I should see if there are, in fact, patterns here. Um, and I should ask my doctors questions about why there are patterns here. And um, I began to, uh, to explore. And as a former journalist and management consultant, one thing that I was very good at was asking a lot of questions, uh, synthesizing information, looking for patterns and trends, and beginning to tell a story about them. And, and that's what I ended up doing. In the end, I spoke with over a hundred patients um, and you know, listened to their stories. and some of those patients were you know, men and women and old and young and recently diagnosed and you know, diagnosed 10 or more years ago, um, all different types of, of solid tumors and, and um, lead cancers, I mean just a variety and um, mostly here in the states, but also in other uh, places around the world. Um, and the experiences were Pretty universal. Um, The emotional roller coaster ride was actually somewhat predictable, Um, which got me back to the question of well, why? Why does it happen that way? And more importantly, why do we not talk about it? Why do we not um, anticipate and therefore? um be prepared and able to manage uh, the emotional turmoil of cancer. Everybody talks about the fact that you're going to lose your hair. Why don't we talk about the fact that we're going to lose our minds? Um, and my doctors had no good answers for me, which is why I started um, researching in the medical literature and then Um, interviewing all sorts of experts, um, including oncologists and psychologists and exercise physiologists and alternative medicine experts and even neuroscientists trying to understand um, what goes on and why it goes on and and most importantly, what to do about it. And uh, eventually, I um, wrote and published a book called The Big Ordeal understanding and managing the psychological turmoil of cancer and it is my um, uh, my firm belief after all of this research that um, there are a lot of physiological changes that go on in our bodies as a result of the cancer that's growing within us and as a result of various aspects of the treatment that create changes that our brain registers as, a need to be depressed, a need to be anxious, um, a need to go back to bed and pull the covers up over our heads. And it's those chemical changes in our body that are driving a lot of the emotional ride that we experience. But because as a society, cancer is still stigmatized and mental health issues are still stigmatized, we don't talk about any of this. And so we all go into it feeling like we are the only ones to ever feel this way. And feeling the additional burden that the um, cancer positivity movement has put on us all, that if I show any signs of weakness, I'm not living up to what I need to do in order to be a successful cancer patient, which makes it that much harder to accept the fact that, yeah, I want to cry today. I feel bad that I have cancer. I am struggling with all that I'm dealing with. And I just need to cry and I just need to be depressed. And you know what? It turns out that's okay. That's perfectly normal. And that's part of coping with it. Um, So I I continue now to um, try to help others understand um, why they feel the way they do and what they can do about it Um, and hope that bit by bit we can increase the, the conversation around um, the emotional aspects of of cancer to help people understand that um, it really is a big ordeal and that uh, that they're not alone in what they're uh, what they're going through.
0: I've been ferociously taking notes here. I might <laughs> need another piece of paper, but I want to I want to back up. You you had so many golden nuggets I call here that I that I've kind of start here on my paper, but looking over your bio. I know, and, and and you haven't mentioned it yet. When you were diagnosed, I think it said in your bio you were uh, you resigned from Monte Fu Monte Fuor Medical Center in New York City, where you had been the chief uh, served as the vice president, chief marketing officer prior to your diagnosis. So, when you get diagnosed, I know you said like, "Hey, you know you, you were going regularly." You worked in a medical community for, for a time before your diagnosis. So you were consciously aware of like, hey, you got to go for checkups, got to go for routine exams. So it wasn't as if you were avoiding going to the doctor or not being aware of signs and symptoms. Naturally, the, there wasn't no signs and symptoms with this cancer. But I, I just want to talk about this for a second because I think sometimes you know, people tend to um, be self-aware Of what's going on like something's not right just as cancer as a whole and reaching out to their doctor before they their doctor reaches out to them for a routine checkup or something like that
1: yeah i think i think it's it's um not uncommon for us to feel as if something is wrong in our bodies um before a cancer diagnosis but with so many cancers the something is off is mm. so ambiguous that it's hard to know, what even, is. yeah, what's going on, and even what sort of a doctor do I go see about this, you know, um uncertain feeling that I have? Um, but other than, you know, feeling, a little bit of, um, of fatigue, I really didn't have any symptoms and, you know, I was 57 years old at the time. What 57 year old doesn't feel fatigued. So, so so it it was, it, it was not that I had a, a lump that was obvious or a, a pain that was persistent or, you know, any of the, uh, you know, or visible, um, uh you know mole that had changed um textures i mean there was there was no classic oh that's something you have to worry about it was just sort of this you know uh, sense of of fatigue and and i think that with so many cancers that is the case that you we have nebulous symptoms i mean um for many uh gynecologic cancers the only uh symptom is a is a nebulous sense of something's not quite right here in my middle. Um, you know, for, um, you know, pancreatic cancer, many people don't have any pain. No. Um, they don't have anything that says, Oh, hmm, I should go see a, who do I see for pancreas anyway? You know? <laughs> Um, so for most cancers, it's not, it's not obvious, um, That we have something going on in our bodies, or what that something is, and therefore that we need to go see some sort of medical expert to figure it out.
0: So, do you think then? Let me ask this question. I mean, there is guidance on some cancers, like we know with women, annual breast exams, right? Mammograms. We know with men, PSA tests for prostate we know what colonoscopies now now the guidance so there there's there's some cancers that we do have guidance but to your point you know feeling, you know, off and if your only symptom is like you feel a little run down, you're tired a bit, lethargic, it could be your diet, it could be seasonality, right? Like there's some people that when the seasons change, they, you know, you lose an hour of sleep because of, uh, you know, the clock's changing or the time zone, you know, the time changing. So that could just be, you know, it could, it's it's wet and rainy, you know, it's, it's April, April showers bring May flowers, right? So you, you have this kind of grogginess. So, do you think then the medical community as a whole needs to do a better job in maybe messaging that, like, hey, if something just as, like, hey, you feel run down and it's prolonged after, uh, you know, two weeks and you just can't seem to get out of that? you know, motion or get out of that funk, let's say, that you should go get, you know, a blood test or you should go see a specialist or who is that person to see? Do you think they fail though? Like the, You know, the, and and I know that's, that's kind of tough words, but, you know, I, I think sometimes we are always our biggest advocates for ourselves, but like, to your point, like, who do you go see though, right? Like,
1: yeah. with something and, and, and so I vague... I think it's really tricky, too, because I think that many of the guidelines have been written from the standpoint of, well, if we check PSA too often, we're going to identify things that are never going to be a cancer. Correct. If we do too many, you know, if we do breast exams too early, we're going to identify things that are never going to be a cancer. Um, and same with the gynecologic exams. And so, you know, for years I had had an annual pap smear and that was just you know what what we were supposed to do and then there was a change from you know the the cancer experts the gynecologic cancer experts that said no 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 every two to three years is fine and so every two to three years is probably fine for. the world as a whole. Yeah, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's fine for you as a person. Correct. And, um, you know, trying to thread the needle on that, I, I think it's a challenge for um, for patients. And so if the, the press is saying, well, we've changed the guidelines and every two to three years is fine. Um, and you've got only sort of ambiguous or non-existent symptoms, you know, how do you, yeah? You know, how do you know that you're supposed to go? Um, and many of us have long-term relationships with, uh, our medical professionals. I mean, uh, my gynecologist delivered my babies who are now 28 and 30. I mean, she, she knew me well. Um, and so, you know, when she called to say, you know, you need to you need to come in. It's been too long. Um, I took her seriously. But but many people don't have those um, long-term or primary care relationships. And so um, it's easy to ignore um, those subtle symptoms and say, oh, I don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to go get a colonoscopy. I don't even have a you know, a general practitioner who would recommend that I go get a colonoscopy. So I'm just not going to worry about it. Um, and so I think a lot of of cancers don't get diagnosed um, at the earlier stages when they can be um, when they can be more easily treated um, because of the mixed messaging around. We'll pay attention to your body, and but there obscure symptoms but you know go get screenings but not too often and, yeah. and so it's hard it's hard to know what to do and how to take care of your body um, given the threat of cancer
0: and then Cynthia let's just throw in the things that you don't control like a pandemic right uh, yeah so you know just imagine <laughs> now so we talk about like controlling what you can't control a lot on this podcast and so all right so you can control, in a way, the communication with your doctors, right? You can control, you know, setting up appointments and when you should go, but then throw in a pandemic and everything is just, you're back to square one. Everything gets thrown against the wall. So yeah, it's 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 a fascinating, I, I would love to maybe do an episode on this subject um, in terms of messaging, because I think in in a way, yeah, there are there are guidelines, but you know that's something that we struggle here with. You know, there, there's guidelines, but like clearly, there's people now we know with genetics, right? And this is not just for pancreatic cancer, but all cancers that there's just a a certain percentage of the population that are predisposed because of the genes that make up their body um, that they are going to get certain cancers more so than maybe other people. And those folks need to be aware of that. They need to probably be in surveillance and screening and, you know, be aware of that, um, that risk. And, and so that's a, that's a real challenge. And, and, you know, I think that's something that I, I think the medical community as a whole is trying to do a better job of it, but I think, you know, it's, it's hard. Um, you know, I think the other thing, and, you know, maybe we, we, um, uh, we, we might not want to go down this road, but, you know, access to care, I think, is different. You know, we're here in the the, the Northeast, New York, Connecticut. You know, I, th- I think we, we have pretty good access to care. We have multiple resources and access to care, but certain parts of the country don't. Um, and, th- and that's a that's a real challenge um, and also from from access to care we can go down the road of, of specialty of care, right um, That's right New York, you can go to ma- most of the major medical centers and you know probably get soup to nuts in terms of what the specialty may be for certain types of cancer. Other parts of the country you may just get, you know, no offensive when you're just gonna get a generalist, you know, in terms of cancer treatment. and that might not be the best person to to be there for your your cancer treatment. So you know it's it's a really um, interesting story that we could go down uh, you know and talk about that. Uh, but I, I do think going back to this, being self-aware, and knowing, yes. you know, that uh, that you go for these routine visits is, is really critical, especially during this, this COVID pandemic. I, I, yeah. want, I want to shift here because um, you mentioned in your background, you know, you were at the gym and uh, the gentleman came over to you and, and kind of sat with you and you kind of had like, I, I guess I would call that maybe a tipping point or, you know, the moment that the light bulb goes off. Was that really the moment for you that said, hey, like... I'd like to like because I I really love to learn more about, you know, what was that moment, or maybe there were moments during that journey that you went through that were like, hey, I want to share this. And naturally, being a former journalist, you probably had that kind of spirit already that you were probably already maybe writing about this or thinking about it. But what were those moments that kind of really kind of pushed you over that edge or made that tip happen, where you said, "All right, I'm going to do this. I want to share this."
1: Yeah, it it really was um, that moment at the at the gym. And and you know, I I am a writer, and when I left Montefiore, it was the idea that I was going to write a novel. Um, never my intention to write a cancer book, but
0: <laughs> little did you, you know.
1: know kay- Little did I know. Um, you know, life has other plans. Um, but it, it was really at that moment, it was like, oh, my God. I, you know, I felt what I remember thinking was, oh, my God, I this is Cancer University. I am learning about cancer in a way that I never imagined I would understand. And it was really from that moment on that I said, OK, this is what I have to do. Um, and I, I, I was so upset by the fact that nobody had told me that cancer was going to be such a challenging emotional experience. And yet here was somebody who was telling me that they had the exact same emotions. And so how can it be that I was left to struggle through this on my own if there is a known set of circumstances that that drive it. And, and, you know, what, what I really found amusing over time was, I mean, not only did I continue to ask my doctors all sorts of questions that they couldn't answer, but they had actually started a peer-to-peer mentoring program for gynecologic cancer patients at the hospital where I was treated, uh, Mount Sinai in New York. They had started this program. So they were obviously aware of the fact that cancer is an emotional uh, experience and that we need peer to peer support, um, to get through cancer. And yet they had no answers for me. And more than that, they never even told me about this, the existence of this program until long after I was done with treatment. So I was like, there's just a, there's a disconnect in the way our medical system approaches cancer. Um, and it's everything from the, from the fact that we have such specialized care. Um, and you know, my doctor's, are top-notch and they did an excellent job of, you know, targeting me with the, the surgery and the uh, chemotherapy that I needed for this particular type of um, unusual and aggressive cancer. And so I am very thankful to them for saving my life, but their their degree of specialization and focus means that it's often not within their um, their their set of strengths to see the human being on the other side to see the whole person because they are so focused on um, the cancer and removing the cancer and is this part of the body healthy? Um, and uh, you know I think that how we go about recruiting uh, the next generation of doctors, um, how we structure our you know medical system, how we pay for medical care, all of those things contribute to, um this you know focus on well let me just deal with this physical uh this this one particular physical ailment uh in front of me as opposed to um really having uh global healers um that are addressing the whole uh, kit and caboodle and 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 again I, we just we don't talk about mental health we don't talk about the fact that um that that cancer is emotional that people have feelings um that it's okay to cry. I mean, we just, we just don't talk about those things enough. And so, um, we don't understand until, uh, much later that it's, um, that it's universal. It's, we're not alone in this.
0: So you just said a couple of things uh, that I want to talk about here. So you said the fact that doctors aren't trained to talk to patients about the emotional stuff and uh, this is something that is like a thorn in my side because I can't tell you, and I'm sure you've, and, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit in, in a bit, with patients that you've talked to that probably have said the same thing. But I I probably get a call a month. I need another doctor. I say, okay, why? Well, you know, so-and-so is not listening to our, our family's emotional needs. They're not connecting. They just want to jam chemo down my mom or dad or, you know, my, my throat and that's it. That's all they're, they're telling us. They're not dealing with this emotionally. And I've said time and time again, you know, doctors are, they're brilliant. They're all, they all do a lot of schooling, but at the end of the day, you have to connect with your doctor, right? You have to have that emotional connection. And I don't know, Cynthia, and I'd love to hear your feedback I think it's a training issue, but I don't get, but, but, but I say that, but then there's some doctors that have compassion that can connect emotionally and that get it. But then there's, a, there's some that don't, that just don't. And I don't know if that's a training aspect. If it's, a, I, I think it's a defense mechanism actually, because I understand like, they're in the, you know, and especially in this space with pancreatic cancer, which is a very lethal cancer. And, you know, the statistically, we know what the stats are. So maybe the, a lot of the doctors in this space emotionally disconnect from the patients because they don't, they can't absorb that emotional connection possibly. But I, I know for my family's experience, we had, we, we and, and I speak from experience a lot with my dad, we had a doctor that was just emotionally disconnected to us. And what do I mean by that? He just would come in, Mr. Varelli, how you doing? How you feeling? Great. Okay. This is what we're going to do. This is what we expect. Any questions? No. See you later. Um, and, and it wasn't, you know, there was no, and yeah, did, did we trust them that he was giving my dad the proper treatment? Yes. But there was no emotional connection. And then my parents decided to leave that doctor. Well, I suggested we leave right away cause I didn't click with him. Um, sooner, but they didn't decide to leave him until he said, okay, well, you know, we've tried everything and and there's really nothing left. I think we need to kind of talk about, you know, end of life or, you know, hospice care. And then my mom had said, no, we're going to go find another doctor, which we did. And we connected, you know, we connected emotionally. And the reality was that the second doctor didn't say anything different than the first doctor but he was able to connect with myself and my dad and my mom emotionally. And so yeah. I remember that experience, Cynthia. And, and so I guess I'm rambling here a bit, but telling a story, but I don't understand why most doctors don't have that connection. And it's intriguing yeah. to me. And I don't I, what what in your experience and and I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, um <sighs> I think that it's a, it's a complicated issue um and, but I but I can I'm
0: laughing I, yeah complicated yeah okay
1: but I can say that it is also a common one um I, I, there was one patient I interviewed who told me um her her cancer had progressed and it was you know stage 4 gynecologic cancer and um she had been through a number of rounds of treatment and at one point her doctor said um well, okay. I think that's that's it for now, and <laughs> we'll see you in three months. Oh, and man. she asked, "Well, does that mean that my cancer is in remission?" And the doctor said, "Lady, what part of stage four cancer don't you understand?" Ugh. Now, obviously, this doctor had worked too many hours with too many distressing, um, uh, you know, patients, and had lost. His ability to um, communicate or feel compassion for any of his patients, he should have either retired, gone sabbatical, or um, at least taken the week off. Um, so, you know, not everyone has that that feeling, but I do think the fact that um, the way we pay for healthcare means that doctors get paid on a transactional basis mm-hmm. and therefore they need to squeeze so many transactions into the day in order um, to earn their keep um, and that means that they have about 15 or 20 minutes for each patient um, for the most part now there mm-hmm. are doctors that will make an exception and for you know the first time you see the doctor you get a two-hour visit or, or whatever but for the most part our doctors get about 20 minutes with us um, which means they don't want to open the door Um, if they open the door to how are you feeling inside what you know what are you thinking and feeling about this treatment what are your worries about um, you know the next three months of your life they open that thing that crack and they're going to get you know overwhelmed by all of the emotions and stories that then all of a sudden they have to deal with. And as you said, they have to put up some walls, um, particularly when there are, um, you know, a predominance of of patients with devastating uh, cancers. Um, If you become friendly and compassionate to um, every single patient that you work with, and, you know, 80% of them, you know, die within five years, that's a tremendous amount of loss that you as a, as a human being have to deal with. Um, the, uh, the doctor who wrote the foreword of my book, Anne-Marie Bedeau, um, she was very close with, uh, one of her patients who had, uh, recurrent, uh, cancer. And, um, and when this patient died after, 15 years of, of being treated by, uh, by this doctor, um, I, she felt a, a tremendous sense of loss and said, I can't allow myself to get that close to my patients mm-hmm. uh, all the time because I need to protect myself. Um, and so I, I think that there's a, a, a real lot of, of things going on here. I also think that the way we recruit medical students um, is not necessarily conducive to um, the whole healer uh, aspect of, of care that we would want you know the the degree of scientific knowledge that is required um, and the the type of training um, that is required um, allows people to thrive who are not necessarily the people that would be the most compassionate um, you know they they may be more introverted and, knowledge-oriented as opposed to extroverted and people-oriented. And that that comes through in both the brilliant breakthroughs that we've had in cancer treatment, but also in the lack of compassionate communication um, with our pac- with patients. But that said, I agree wholeheartedly that one of the most important things we have to do as patients is advocate for ourselves. And if that means changing, um, doctors, then that's the right thing to do. You can't, you can't advocate for yourself if the doctor doesn't want to partner with you, if the doctor isn't able to communicate with you and you're not feeling like there's a communication connection. Um, and that's a, a really important part of, uh, uh, recovering our health is to, is to be able to experience that connection.
0: So many golden nuggets there. And I, and so you saying like the, the way that we pay for healthcare, and that's so true. I, I just went and uh, not related to cancer, but I just had a shoulder issue, and this drives me bananas. And I'm sure our listeners at home listening, everyone's been in this situation. Whether it's a dentist or you know a doctor, you go for two thirty, you don't see the doctor to three fifteen. You know, you wait in a lobby for 45 minutes. Now, granted, I had I have shoulder pain. It's not cancer. It's not life or death. I was somewhat okay, but not okay with it. I get it. But and then the, the first thing when the doctor came in and he apologized, which I was like really like, oh, okay, that's that's a first. Usually doctors just come in and say, Hey, how are you doing? They don't say, Oh, I'm so sorry. And he said, Hey, I'm so sorry I made you wait. You know, but unfortunately I got to see, and and the guy was straight up honest. I have to see 55 patients a day because of insurance and the billing. So, uh, you know, one, one person who, you know, messes up the, the system, you know, then backs everything up. And I said, all right, I really respect your honesty for that. But you know, 55, patients yeah, 55 a day. Day. I, I I was going to ask him what kind of car he drove, just being a, a wise guy and being cynical. But uh, I figured I wouldn't go there because he was sticking a cortisone shot into my shoulder there shortly thereafter. Um, but so, but to, but in all seriousness, the system itself, you know, and hearing you hearing you talk about this and taking notes. So, like, is the system? I think the system's broken. I think we know that, right? There's like a big issue here with healthcare. Not that uh, other countries do it better, or you know, that our system is the best or the worst. But I, I I think there 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 could be changes uh, that could make things really better. And, 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 you know, and you, you talk about recruiting medical students. And, and I just remember, you know, that track, you know, medical students, they go to school for a long time. You usually do see introverts uh, versus the extrovert. But I do think, and, and, and I, I I should say, I do know there's plenty of extroverts out there. And that's where I, I kind of really, as you said, you know, you have to become your biggest advocate. And I know sometimes that's really hard when you're facing cancer and whether that's a terminal diagnosis or, you know, an early on stage diagnosis regardless it's a it's a shock and your whole world is turned upside down. So I think sometimes it's really hard to think like that, right? Like people say, "Well, I want the best doctor in the world." Well, the best doctor in the world could be a total introvert and a total jerk and, you know, give you that similar story that you just shared with us where they say, "Okay, well, we'll see you in 3 months." You know, what does that mean? You know, kind of kind of analogy. Or you could get someone that's super extroverted that connects with you emotionally. And so I guess in saying all this, in your experience, and your research, what do you think most patients do? Because I, I think that's really hard, right? And we try to advocate here to like do your homework, get a second opinion. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before that my background before this was in financial services. And I'll use this analogy, Cynthia, and maybe you saw this in your, in your research. And I've seen it here. And the analogy is, was when I was in the financial services business, I would meet people and we would do financial needs analysis and we would look over their investments. And some people, you know, these people that I'm identifying here, they they may have lost like 20, 30, 40, 50% with their current advisor. And we had a great conversation. We did a needs analysis. We went through everything. We make a recommendation. You know, we we show them historically where they could have been better, but they still don't leave because they have that connection. And I always used to say in the financial services world that people don't want to admit that they're wrong, that they made a bad choice. Now, doing what we do now, we get a lot of people that ask us you know, for second opinions and they go on these second opinions, but they don't leave. And I've always said to myself, going back to my financial services days, was is kind of that same analogy where people don't want to leave because they think they are admitting some fault or that they made a mistake. Yeah, so, I
1: think that one of one of the most stressful times that the, in the cancer journey is when um, one has the information about a diagnosis and now needs to make uh, decisions about who who am I going to entrust my um, my care uh, to um, and uh, what protocol am I comfortable um, accepting and uh, what hospital do I want to work at at work with and and there's there's this period of time where the information about the diagnosis has come in and you, really want to move forward with the treatment because you know that you're not going to be able to rest until somebody starts treating your cancer. Um, and, you know, as one patient said, you sort of have to go from zero to PhD overnight yeah. in order to make a, a decision. And it's a, it's a very, very stressful time. Um, and I think that we do invest a lot of ourselves in first making that decision, but then honoring that decision, having um, invested so much in making that decision. So I, yeah, there was one patient who had a, a rare type of cancer um, who said, you know, she could either go with the doctor who um, did the research um, on this cancer to determine what works and what doesn't work, or she could go with the doctor who wrote the protocol. I mean, so there were two mm-hmm. fabulous doctors. Um, how could she possibly choose? You know, one was an older gentleman, one was a younger woman, one had, you know, degrees from, you know, the top three universities, the other had degrees from, you know, five of the top six universities. I mean, just, you know, there was, you could compare them in so many different ways, and they were both excellent choices. And ultimately, it came down to which one did she feel most comfortable with? Um, Who could she have a conversation with? Uh, One made her cry for asking too many questions and so i'm going with the other one Um, and and we all make decisions like that where it's a combination of using our you know prefrontal cortex to really think and rationalize that decision but then ultimately going with our gut Um, and then because we've made that decision and because we've invested so much energy in that decision we really feel compelled to stick with it. And it's, so it is It is hard for somebody to, um, to make a switch because making a switch also means that you introduce some doubt in your mm-hmm. own mind about did I do something wrong? Have I done everything I can possibly do um, to get well? Or by choosing the wrong doctor, did I um, preclude myself from getting healthy? Did I do something that's gonna make it harder for me to recover? Um, and we don't, we don't want to give ourselves any more guilt and responsibility towards our cancer than, than absolutely necessary. Um, and so that, that adds to the, to the difficulty of, of switching. Um, you know, it, it's really, it's complicated when we get a cancer diagnosis because so much of what drives cancer is beyond our control. Um, it's, it is our genetics. It's the environmental factors that we can't control the air we breathe, the water we drink, the foods we consume, um, and, and, and just the amount of stress in our, in our lives, some mm-hmm. of which we might be able to control, but a lot of which we can't, you know, as, as, as my doctor explained it to me, it's sort of like a, a, a balanced scale. And there are all of these things that, um, drive the production of cancer in our bodies. And then there are a bunch of things that help strengthen the immune system uh, to allow us to innately fight against cancer and therefore prevent cancer from taking hold. And exercise and diet and stress reduction, um, all of those things can help us strengthen the immune system and therefore, um, you know, if a cancerous cell should happen to emerge, allow the body to uh eliminate it before it, it becomes uh dangerous. But bigger factors are things that we can control, like our genetic uh, predisposition to cancer, like um, you know, the amount of, of pollution we're exposed to, um, mm-hmm. the you know, chemicals on our food that we're unaware of, the um the air we breathe. I mean, yes, we can quit smoking. Yes, we can um, you know, eat more organic produce, but even those two things, and, and you know, smoking is, is a big one because uh, I think research now says it contributes to something like 20% of all cancers. Um, but it contributes to. Um, we all know somebody who smoked three packs a day and never developed cancer. A, you know, yeah. so how how is it fair here that, you know, somebody who leads a perfectly healthy life um, should actually develop cancer? And it's that lack of control that makes us feel so... Um, Uh, you know, like like life is unfair when we actually hear that diagnosis. And it's also part of what contributes to the stress around the diagnosis is that we realize the degree to which life is out of control. And we don't have control over who gets cancer. We don't have control over what our our treatment is going to be. We don't have control over how our bodies are going to respond to um, uh, to treatment, um, whether or not we're going to recover. There's just so much that's unknown. And that uncertainty is uh, a tremendous um, uh, creator of stress for all of us.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, you, you said some very powerful things there. And, and I think you know, you, I said you kind of worry about what you can control, not what you can't control. So like you said, we've known people that smoke three packs a day. Uh, I've known people that, you know, have been guests on this podcast that have worked out, lived uh, a very um, clean lifestyle in terms of their diet, their mental awareness, and they still get cancer. And those are the things that, you know, they didn't have control of, but they did everything they could to get them to that point to be able to fight that. You mentioned the mental aspect and I know we've talked a lot you've mentioned mental a lot here. And I know we talked a little bit before about you know the breakdown in the in the system and just the emotional connection but why is it in your opinion and I do want to shift to the book here in a second but before we get there you know I want to talk about this mental health but why is it that mental health is just not talked about especially in 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 cancer and there's a stigma as you said, around it, um, there's a stigma as a whole with mental health. And you would think now, you know, here we are in 2021. I mean, I guess maybe because of cancel culture, but, you know, we're we, it seems like we've become so accepting of everyone, regardless of sexual orientation, um, race, color, um, ethnicity, ethnicity. But that mental health is something that has still become a stigma, even to this day, where you would think where we are as a culture here in the United States, like we would be more accepting of that.
1: Yeah, you would you would think we would be more accepting yeah. of that. Um, I think that, you know, some of it is, you know, particularly you know here in New England and, and the East Coast, our puritanical heritage, you know, that um, <laughs> um, we don't like to believe that um, there are physiological drivers of emotional health, but rather view it as a weakness. And I, mm-hmm. I, and I think that that's a, a real, um, a real problem. Um, you know, I, I like, I, I just, you know, I keep on repeating, it's not you, it's chemistry, you know, oh, yeah. it's, it's brain chemistry. And, um, I think that, uh, uh, there has been a lag in an understanding about what goes on in the brain that has, um, allowed for the stigma of mental health, um, issues to, uh, to persist, you know, and we have, um, much more of our understanding of, um, human beings has been focused on understanding the body and much less on understanding the mind. And because of that, um, and because it is harder to understand the mind, um, it, it's allowed, Uh, our historic beliefs that um, we should be able to control our behavior. We should be able to control our, uh, our feelings to, to persist. And that's allowed the stigma uh, around mental health to, uh, to continue. Um, Another real big aha moment for me um, with this book came when I had my first conversation with a neuroscientist and I was trying to understand, yeah, but, but what is it specifically about cancer that makes it more emotional? Because a number of patients that I had interviewed said, well, I had open heart surgery, that was a breeze, or I had a you know, a brain uh, uh, aneurysm, and that was, that was nothing compared to cancer. I was like, well, why is cancer so much worse? And so I was trying to understand that, and um, neuroscientists started talking to me about something called sickness behavior. And as he explained it to me, um, there's a class of proteins that our bodies make called cytokines. And Mm -hmm. cytokines have been in the news a little bit related to to COVID um, and cytokine storms. But cytokines are proteins that allow the immune system to communicate with itself. And there are pro-inflammatory cytokines and anti-inflammatory cytokines that usually stay in balance and they go, you know, up and down depending upon what's going on in our body, but they tend to go back to homeostasis. So you get a paper cut and Cytokin pro-inflammatory cytokines are released right away um, to signal for the body to, first of all, bring platelets over to that paper cut to start the healing process and stop you from bleeding. And then secondly, to bring white blood cells over and make sure that uh, no infection gets in. Um, and then, um, you know, you get a little bit of swelling and redness there because of all of the extra blood cells that are, that are there. But eventually it resolves. The paper cut heals. The anti-inflammatory cytokines, uh, get signaled, um, the inflammation reduces and, um, you go back to, you know, homeostasis, everything is, is hunky dory. Well, if a paper cut releases a little cytokines, just imagine what major surgery might do. Um, and it turns out that, um, having cancerous cells in your body actually increases inflammation, um, and mm-hmm. in cytokines having, um, chemotherapy increases uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines. Having radiation uh, increases pro-inflammatory cytokines. Many immunotherapies are actually a type of cytokine therapy. Um, Cancer cells dying off and needing to be eliminated from your body increases pro-inflammatory cytokines. So you have all of these things going on in your body. And lo and behold, They actually change chemistry in your brain as well. Mm -hmm. And they signal the brain to become depressed, to become foggy headed, to become um, uh, fatigued and to drive that sickness behavior that just makes us want to climb back under the covers. Um, And when you see that, that that is happening because of physiological changes, it's not because I'm weak that I want to cry, but I'm crying because my body is saying that crying is the right thing to do, that going back to bed is the right thing to do, that being tired is the right thing to do, that being depressed is the right thing to do. And if we don't understand that the science is driving that, then we feel the, the pressure to be strong and to, uh, and to fight the good fight and to um, you know, keep a positive um, spirit. And all of that just increases our sense of being um, weak and unable to, uh, to live up to the demands of cancer. So um, for me, that, that big aha was, there are physical drivers of all of this that explain a lot of what many people feel when they're going through cancer. Um, And obviously, you know, our our unique DNA, our unique um, personal histories, um, you know, people who experienced more trauma in their um, in their upbringing. Are more sensitive to um, to stress and therefore more likely to have a greater stress reaction and a greater uh, inflammatory uh, response to um, cancer and its treatment than people that you know never experienced any trauma in their lives. Um, you know, so we're all we're all different, and not only our our, brain, our body chemistry is different and our brain chemistry is different but how we internalize those emotions and then express those emotions to ourselves and others um, also varies so that, you know, it's not like we can say universally everyone who has this much chemo is going to experience this much fogginess or this much depression um, because we are all so different um, but to know that, you know, chemo and radiation, in addition to causing, um, fatigue also cause fuzzy, uh, headedness also cause a tendency towards, um, depression and sickness, quote unquote, behavior. Um, I, that really helps to take the, the guilt away, um, mm-hmm. from the, from the emotional experience.
0: It's powerful. I've got a question to that, but I, I want to get into the book and I don't want to give away because we do want to share information, but we want our listeners to go out and get your book. <laughs> um, so <laughs> we want to give all the secrets away here, but uh, I, I love that, what you just said. And again, writing notes here and, you know, I guess I I don't want to share too much because this is not about me, but I look back at my own personal journey with my dad and I remember like, we got a brochure about Depression, and I remember every time we'd go, like you know, you you get the question, "Are you depressed?" Yeah, no, and and we would have this running joke within the family because it was like a party when my dad went to get chemotherapy, and we'd have people there, and you know, the nurse comes over and says, "Okay, Mister Verley, are you depressed?" And it's you know, they go through the questions, you know, has your appetite changed? Are you depressed? And we'd always say, like, "Yeah, no, yeah, of course he's depressed. (laughs) He's he's battling cancer. He's here. He's got to do this cocktail. He doesn't want to be here, right?" And I'm sure. You know, many people, if not all, that are battling cancer would probably say the same. They don't want to be there, right? Like, so depression kind of like goes hand in hand with that. But then hearing you talk about, you know, the neuroscience background is just so fascinating. So to get to the book here, with the patients that you interviewed and and the experts that you interviewed, can you share maybe some strategies where they're talked about, like how people overcame this? And I put in quotation marks here, air quotes, like this mental storm that yeah. was caused by the cancer, whether it was the diagnosis, well, not the diagnosis, but treatments, the cancer itself, like what strategies maybe, I mean, it's it's kind of fascinating. You, you've kind of have this view from 30,000 feet with all these people. To kind of analyze and look at like what worked, what didn't work, what should have, could have. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. But what were some of the things that you learned in your analysis and in writing the book with talking to all these patients about that mental storm?
1: Yeah, Um, you know, it's a it's an interesting um, process uh, throughout the cancer journey, and I tried to break it down by the. Um, the phases of the journey so you know there's the diagnosis phase and there's the uh, you know stressful decision making phase and the starting treatment phase and um, you know, it goes, it, it sort of goes through um, the process so that at each phase, you can understand sort of what is a typical experience, what's the science behind that emotional experience, and then what can you do um, to cope with it. And of course, you know, everybody has a, a different um, coping strategy. And it's not like there is one right way to cope, um, because the only way to cope is the way that works for you. Um, but the uh, the the strategies range from being things that are sort of um, physically driven to being things that are sort of cognitively cognitively driven to being mind body things. So some physical ways of coping. Um, for some people, it's exercise. You know, it's like I needed to get back to the gym because um, I needed to blow off steam. I needed to burn energy. I needed that dopamine hit that comes from uh, running, which you know I sort of had to give up in the middle of, of treatment because I didn't have the energy to even even plod my way around. I um got, you know used to think I should have a, a t shirt that says I may be slow but I'm beating cancer. <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> that's a great one. I
1: just was so slow. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that physical way of coping um, works for a lot of people. And, you know, it involves things like hugging, which releases oxytocin. It involves things like um, laughing, um, petting your, you know, your dog or your cat. I mean, uh, getting a good night's sleep, um, eating foods that you enjoy. All of those things give us pleasure and help to um, release beneficial um, hormones and chemicals in our brain. Um, For some people, uh, they are more comforted by um, coping processes that allow them to um, regain a sense of of control. Um, So uh, problem solving, breaking the problem down into baby steps and and bite-sized pieces that allow them to to deal with that particular piece of the pie on any uh, given moment. Um, and, um, and then the third category is, is sort of the mind body coping where, you know, uh, it's everything from yoga and meditation to, you know, Tai Chi and, um, you know, I like to say even, um, uh, knitting, you know, you mm-hmm. sit there, uh, knit one, purl one, knit one, purl one, uh, you know, it's the same as meditation. Um, you distance your mental function from, um, your body and you allow yourself for a while to stop thinking about, um, the, you know, the concerns you have over, uh, cancer and your prognosis and everything else that's going on. Um, you know, prayer, um, of any type, uh, is, is a really good meditative process. Um, you know, anything that will help you, uh, you know, having a massage, a good mind body therapy helps you both physically relax, but also takes your mind off of of the cancer. Um, so those are the three broad categories of coping. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, some people, some people like to live in denial and, and, you know, that is a, a a coping by thinking mechanism that allows them to think about everything but, um, cancer. Um, and some people, uh, you know, were very effective at saying, you know what, I am not going to be able to think about anything having to do with my cancer. Um, spouse who I love, child who I love, parent who I love, you worry about it for me and I'm just going to do what you tell me to do. And that's a way of coping. Other people, Need to feel like they have control over everything. And they cope by you know researching and plotting and and planning and you know f- feeling like they know everything that they need to know about cancer. Um, some people cope by uh, using humor. Um, uh, and, you know, making fun of how they look, making fun of the fact that they're not going to be around for very long. Uh, you know, whatever it is that that allows them to um, uh, feel better about themselves because they are trying to take some control uh, back again from a situation where they have lost all control. It's and, you know, the, the other thing that's really important is that what works one day might not work the next day what seems like a silly stupid idea um, one morning might be just the right thing um, at another time and so you know part of what I encourage uh, with the people that I, I mentor now is to familiar familiarize yourself with a lot of different ways of coping so that you have them at your disposal when you need them. Um, you know, some people really like to just sit and draw. There's this, um, you know, Zentangles thing that's going around right now on the web where you're just, you know, you're just drawing. You're not drawing anything in particular, but you're just sitting there and you're drawing and you're listening to good music and maybe something comes of it. And that's a way of sort of letting it out. But again, keeping your mind focused so that you're not thinking about, you know, cancer in your a sense of impending doom. Um, you know, so lots of lots of different tools that we can use, so long as we are receptive to the idea that we have to cope, um, as opposed to being in uh, full denial. Um, you know, I had uh, one patient ask me once, you know, can you ever be too good at coping? And the answer <laughs> is yes. You can. You can be too good at coping. You can be so good at coping that you don't allow yourself to understand that you're having an emotional experience you're you put up such defensive walls around um the idea that you need to cope that you you don't cope and then um as another patient told me you know decades after um his cancer uh diagnosis he found himself suicidal because he hadn't actually processed any of the loss that he had experienced until, you know, he had his uh, he had osteosarcoma and his uh, leg amputated at age 17. And he was in his 50s before he came to terms with all of that, um, you know, after his third suicide attempt. Um, so, you know, you can become too good at coping and so good that you don't allow yourself to feel. Um, And it's the recognition that you are feeling things and that you are losing things um, and then finding ways to um, help yourself cope with that, um, to get through the cancer and get through the loss and recover from um, the experience. That's important.
0: Well, I think we mentioned this before and I appreciate all that feedback because there's a balancing act to all this, right? As you said, I, I you know, we we focused on the mental aspect, but then there's the flip side where people think they're, you know, they don't they don't necessarily deal with it. Um and, you know, your your mental ability to get through that via strength is a is a strength, but then also can be somewhat of a weakness, right? Because you don't deal with that coping you know, with that disease. And eventually, like you said, like the gentleman who lost his leg, eventually it kind of creeped up. So there, there is, I I feel like a fine balancing act in a way, Cynthia, possibly with this, because, you know, and this is hard. Like you've got to find that happy medium, I guess. You can't be too far to the right. You can't be too far to the left. Uh, I think that's exactly right. (laughs) Right. And, And I
1: think that it's, it's particularly challenging because there's such a physical process one has to get through. and, if you allow yourself to feel all that you're feeling, it can be really hard to get through that physical process yeah. of cancer and and its treatment. And so sometimes, you know, people put up those um, you know denial defenses and and you know that strength in order to carry them through the treatment phase. And then they're done with that first round, maybe end of treatment for them. And then they experience um, the tremendous loss and depression that comes from, like you know, what the hell just happened to me? I got hit by a truck, and and sometimes that's even harder because now they no longer are sitting with a group of other people going through chemotherapy. They're no longer being. Uh, you know, seeing their doctors on a, you know, weekly or tri-weekly schedule or whatever, and they sort of, their friends think, oh, well, you know, they're done with treatment, everything is fine now, and they're still feeling very isolated, and that's when it hits them, oh, my God, how much my life has changed um, as a result of cancer, as a result of all that I've gone through. and. At that point, we are so far from being physically recovered, much less you know emotionally recovered, and that's when we often feel most isolated and alone, and um, feel the weight of the loss.
0: Absolutely, and I think though, selling here, well, I'll put on salesman hat. There's resources out there to help you get through this ordeal, and this is why you decided to do what you did, right? So your book here, you know, is a is a is a way that people can get through that journey, you know, and find maybe that happy medium.
1: Yes. And, and there are so many resources. And I think that, um, you know, if, if we talked about the fact that cancer was emotional and that it was okay for people to feel emotions around their cancer experience, that would also, um, help people be more aware of the fact that there are tremendous resources out there if you know to go and look for them so you know because it's not okay to feel emotional we don't think that it's okay to look for support Correct. Um, and you know my my mission is to help people understand that it's okay uh, to be emotional around cancer and go and find so many of the fabulous support resources um, that are out there because there are um there are terrific uh, support resources, whether it's, um, you know, a chat room or an online um, uh, group, a, you know, a, a Zoom um, support group or, a, you know, someday, please, a live and in-person uh, support group. Again, um, you know, there's one-on-one counseling. There are peer mentors, um, you know, Cancer Hope Network or Immerman angels, you call them up and say, I need to talk to somebody. They'll find somebody with your particular type of cancer and match you with somebody whose life experience and cancer experiences are as similar to yours as possible so that you never have to feel alone. Um, you know, when I was pregnant with my kids, um, there was a book that was going around uh, called what to expect when you're expecting. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it was so helpful because it would say, Oh, you know, you know, your baby just, you know, pooped green goo. Oh, that's perfectly normal. Um, And to have somebody tell you that's perfectly normal and here's what I did about it. It just, it, it takes some of the burden off of that, You know, of that feeling. Oh, you feel queasy after chemo? That's perfectly normal. Here's, you know, what I did to deal with my uh, with my queasiness. Oh, you feel depressed? That's perfectly normal. (laughs) Here's something you can do to help with your depression. Uh, And you know, if we normalize the emotional experience, then we will normalize the reaching out for support, and many more people will feel supported and take advantage of the tremendous resources that are there.
0: So powerful, and there, and to your point, there, there's so many groups, and that we've we've talked about that quite often. That no one should fight any cancer, in particular, you know, where pancreatic cancer alone. And there's so many groups you mentioned, Immerman Angels. We we have a partnership with them. I know you're also a director for Moving for Life, um, you know, which encourages cancer recovery through dance, exercise, um, you know, and of a global focus on cancer and provides education and support. So there's so many groups. I I think that's something that I hope our audience listening, like if someone is battling any type of cancer, there are groups. Don't be afraid to ask for help. There's plenty of books and hopefully you uh, you reach out and, and find people because there's a lot of people that want to help um, in this business. So I've got a couple of questions here left for you. Talking about the book, and I know this is kind of a loaded question. It's going to be a hard question, but who is the ideal person to read the big ordeal?
1: So, I wrote it for cancer patients and their loving caregivers. And I think that um, uh, you know I like to say, you know whole families get cancer um, mm-hmm. because everyone in the household is affected by a cancer diagnosis. we We all fear it. We all go through um, an emotional, uh, turmoil um, when we hear somebody we love has cancer, um, and I think that communication is um, is challenging between patients and their loving caregivers because patients feel like um, their family members can't possibly understand what they're going through, and the family members, in fact. Can't possibly understand what the patient is going through, and so um, part of um, uh, my goal with the book is to is to actually help um, those around a cancer patient understand a little bit better about what a, a cancer patient is feeling. Um, but it's for cancer patients um, of all ages and their loving caregivers um, at any stage in their uh, in their cancer process, and. Um, You know, there are chapters on recurrence and end of life, but there are also chapters on um, physical and emotional recovery. Um, And so, you know, whether you're still at diagnosis or you're in the middle of treatment or um, your cancer is uh, in the rearview mirror, but you don't yet feel fully recovered. um, I think that there's something here for you in, in the book.
0: Awesome.
1: And. It does have in each chapter sort of the science behind the emotions. So, um, uh, but it's a sidebar. So, if you're interested in the science, you can read the science. If you're not interested in the science, you don't have to read it. And every chapter has advice from those who um, have been there, those who have learned it the hard way. Um, and so, I, I think that there's a lot of opportunity to. Uh, To learn, not only to feel validated in your own experience because of the commonality of the experience, but to learn how others uh, got through it as well.
0: Was there, and this is my last question, was there a particular patient, and I I, I know this is going to be difficult, but that just really stands out, or one of the stories in the book that just, you know, I mean, it it probably was very hard to kind of narrow down the list of stories, but is there one that just stands out for you?
1: Well, I'll, I'll talk briefly about a a patient uh, with pancreatic cancer um, since uh, that's your, your primary audience. Um, And, and this uh, gentleman, Alan, um, was uh, 65 years old when he was diagnosed. Um, Typical pancreatic cancer, no real clear, Signals as to what was going on. Um, he'd gone in for a you know routine checkup, and you know one of his blood markers was off, and so his doctor said, "You better come back in. Let's try and figure out what's going on." And, um, and and as he always said, his way of dealing with life was, "What me worry?" <laughs> um, you know, and and so he was quite firm in his approach, which was. Um, to live in denial, and and he did live in denial. He said, "Look, I, I get that this can be a devastating disease, but it's not going to be a devastating disease for me. I am, I'm going to get through it. I am, um, I'm determined, and, uh, and and that allowed him to get back to living his life. Um, now, his life was cut short. He did not, um, you know, outrun his uh, pancreatic cancer in in the long run." But he had a uh, a really good long run of um, feeling uh, in good health, and um, it was that that good health that uh, you know, and that 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 denial of the fact that um, uh, you know cancer was eventually going to get him that um, allowed him to you know get back to. Enjoying his grandkids, uh, doing a little consulting work, um, you know, a- attending uh, religious uh, services, which were important to him. Um, and, you know, sometimes denial is the best way to get through it all. Um, there were so many great stories. And, of course, many of the stories, in addition to being um, in the book, are also on my website, where the stories are in, in a uh, much greater depth Um and um uh, you know, I encourage people to go and check out stories on uh the Um I, I, there's most likely a cancer story that um will relate to you in one way or another because it's the same type of cancer or because um the patient's um story feels familiar in uh and how uh he or she uh figures out how to cope. Um because of, of life circumstances. So I, I encourage people to go check it out. It can be really helpful to know that somebody else has been there. And um, these stories help validate that experience for you.
0: It's powerful stuff. Our last thing, Cynthia. I know you mentioned the big but if someone heard something today, whether it was about healthcare, the emotional aspect, the stigma of normalizing uh, or stigma of mental health and normalizing emotions, where is the best place for them, first of all, to connect with you and then to get the book? If someone's looking to get the book, is Amazon, do we go to Barnes and Noble? Um, so that's two questions, where to connect and where to get the book
1: so first of all um the book the big ordeal understanding and managing the psychological turmoil of cancer by cynthia hayes it's available on amazon but in bookstores everywhere so um, you know whatever is uh, your favorite bookstore um if they don't have it right now they can get it for you in a couple of days um and uh the best way to connect with me is either, uh, to go to my website, thebigordeal.com, Um, and, uh, on the homepage, there's a place to, uh, to reach out to me, or you can send me an email directly at, um, to Cynthia at the Um, make it all pretty simple. Um, you can find me on Twitter, um, the big ordeal, uh, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram cancer.thebigordeal. Um, And um, I'm I'm always happy to hear from patients. I'm always looking for uh, other patients who want to share their story. Um, And I'm always happy to to talk to patient support groups um, about the emotional experience of being a cancer patient.
0: Well, Cynthia, thank you for coming on the Project Purple podcast and sharing your journey with cancer and all the great things you are doing for the cancer community as a whole. I mean, we could have gone down some roads here that I would love to maybe revisit in the future because, you know, what we discussed about the system and the healthcare, I mean... You know, this is just such a, a poignant topic. I, I don't know if it's maybe just because we're coming, well, we're still in this pandemic, but we're slowly coming out of it. And some parts of the country have, have been out of it for longer than other parts. But, you know, there's this emotional turmoil and this emotional damage. I, I, I tend to use a word called shrapnel, right? And in cancer, there's this shrapnel effect where this like grenade goes off And, you know, the family experiences it and, you know, it's this, this huge emotional aspect, but no one wants to talk about this. Nobody. And, and I feel we're losing, we're losing that game. Yeah, And it's not a, I say a game, but we're losing that fight in this cancer diagnosis of all cancers, not just pancreatic cancer, is that emotional mental health aspect. And I think if anything, you know, I try to look in the positives of anything and any, anything that COVID has taught us is that how fragile our society is from a mental health aspect. You know, we had people locked up and now we have people that are still locked up that probably shouldn't be locked up. It's okay to come out of your house do yeah. the do it's the proper a, it's okay to
1: come out right
0: it's okay <laughs> yeah. but like you know people are so like the mental health aspect of that, but now you throw cancer into the mix and but it's and to that point, it's okay to have emotions, right? If you're fighting cancer, it's okay to cry. it's okay to be to feel like you're weak there's support there's help it's okay, but people have to come out and we have to be accepting of that and there are a lot of groups that are accepting of that. so this is just such a powerful conversation. I'm glad we had it. so thank you for being a guest on the podcast. I really appreciate well, it. well thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Dina. This has been uh, such an interesting conversation and and I hope uh, your audience hears something that helps.
0: Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, audience, for listening. If you like what you heard today, feel free to share this podcast, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, and until next time, please be safe. That's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast.